ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 beautiful people, how's it going? So anyway, this week on the Ascend podcast, this is a conversation with a really cool guy called Matthew Clark. I recorded this one from my time at the Britain Convention. And this really is interesting in sort of a down-to-earth conversation, very insightful as well on a podcast on the origins and the history of yoga. And Matthew really does have a wealth of knowledge. And what I really loved about him is that I feel that he really does make this subject highly accessible and relevant to the Monday world. And in the past, Matthew has published articles and books on the history of yoga. And he's been visiting. He also went on a, a pilgrimage around India, where he sort of went on this quest to to try and find some of these ancient yogis who have sort of been doing the, the doing devoting their whole lives to yoga. And he wanted to try and um, sort of come across and find out some of the deeper secrets and deeper aspects of these yogis and see what 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 sort of states of consciousness they're getting 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 into and stuff and he also at that time as well he hitchhiked all around india and he trekked about 2000 miles i think he said in the himalayas as well in the search for these ancient yogis and trying to find some of the secrets but the, the this conversation in general for me really is an interesting one it's what it's a conversation that i've always been fascinated by the sort of the deeper aspects of yoga um from a sort of from the mind perspective but to go a bit deeper from the spiritual aspects and the questions of what when you do do prolonged periods of yoga what states of consciousness can 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 be achieved because we know in the past that i mean documentaries that i've watched in the past where we there is rumors and sort of people talking about how in having interactions with certain yogis that have devoted their whole life to the practice and so in talking about how some of the altered states of consciousness and states of consciousness that you can get into is really incredible so i wanted to dive into that anyway and and obviously ask matthew his opinion on that and if, if on his pilgrimage around india if he come across any people like that it really is a cool cool conversation this and just to add as well if you want to check out some more cool um stuff about yoga I actually came across a documentary at about a week ago which was really cool and it's a documentary about the sort of the the deeper origins of yoga just to add to this if you want to sort of listen if you want to check out a bit more information and the documentary is called the tibetan buddhism it's called it's called tibetan buddhism the secrets of the yogis of tibet i think it's in about six or seven parts on youtube it really is a cool watch it's not a long one i think it's only about 30 40 minutes but it's a really cool one just to add to this conversation anyway. And just before we dive into this um, conversation, I just wanted to mention and give you guys a reminder that the Ascend podcast retreat is now fully live and you can now um, book your place onto the retreat. 
It is going to be in the south of France from the 1st to the 8th of September in 2020. Really looking forward to seeing all you guys there. It is going to be a cool experience. One that I promise you, you will never ever forget. And I do feel and I know for a fact that it's going to be like a psychedelic experience. We're all going to come together and it is going to be some 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 beautiful experience i promise you that and i think throughout the throughout the whole retreat as well just to give you guys a bit of an insight into some of the things that we're going to be doing there's going to be guided meditations guided um mindfulness practices yoga there's going to be some conscious dreaming practices as well which i'm really excited to do there's going to be some nature hikes a shamanic meditation ceremony many other group activities as well there's going to be and that's just that's just a few to say the least guys this is going to be absolutely amazing it's in a beautiful villa there's also a hot tub as well with stunning views down at the mediterranean sea this i promise you this has everything that you that your heart's desire it really is a retreat that is going to um, be packed with so much amazing stuff and also just to give you guys a reason why i this is there's only going to be 12 places for the retreat as well and the reason why i chose a small group i could have went much bigger and chose a larger group but i do feel that the the depth and the richness of having a smaller group it's going to be a lot more intimate and i feel that a group of 12 people we are really going to connect in a in a much better better way than being a large group so i think that element will also be really cool so if you feel that in, if you if you feel that in your heart this is something that you're interested in, all you need to do is head over to the Ascend Podcast website. And the retreat page is basically straightforward. All the details are on there about sort of um, times that you have to arrive, how to how uh, the prices and everything else in between. Anyway, so I'm sure if, if if it's in your heart, I'm sure you will check it out. I hope you do because I cannot wait to hang out with all you guys and have an amazing time and amazing experience have an experience i know you're going to have an experience that will change the way that you view life for the rest for the for, for the rest of your life so anyway i hope you enjoyed this conversation and as always patreon is still the best way to support the podcast any amount the, pr- the price of a cup of coffee each month two dollars goes such a long way and it helps me to keep bringing you amazing conversations so anyway enjoy this conversation with matthew clark the history and the origins of consciousness with a twist of all its states of consciousness. <laughs> Enjoy, people. So let's do this. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My like pleasure. I mentioned earlier, really looking forward to having a conversation with you. Mm. And maybe a good place to start this, I would love to know that your sort of your origins of yoga and how you actually got interested and what was the the first sort of interesting interaction with the sort of the practice of yoga that inspired you to continue it for the rest of your life. Well, <clears throat> when I was fourteen. Um, by luck or good fortune, I don't know what it was, but I, I was given LSD. And, uh, yeah, that'll help. <laughs> that was a very interesting <laughs> thing, which changed things a lot. And uh, at school, when I was at school in Brighton, uh, it was at that time, this is a uh, sort of height of all this <clears throat> hippie stuff going on. Uh, it was, it was <clears throat> all very interesting to do, to experiment with all these alternative things. And um, 
it was called Alternative at the time. And <clears throat> the LSD and the other things were just a part of that package. It wasn't the only thing. But then uh, we got interested, me and my friends, we got interested in all those alternative things, including I, after a couple of years, I went vegetarian. Uh, and then I started sleeping on the floor. I don't think, I think I thought, thought furniture was a ridiculous idea. <laughs> I just don't need it. Was, and uh, also started experimenting with meditation and a few yoga postures. And but and also all sorts of other things like experimenting with Sufi dancing and all kinds of things, just just as an experiment, really. But <clears throat> from that point on, um, uh, I, I, it was a very big part of my life, really, all those kinds of activities. And then I went to India when I was 21. That was 1977 because uh, I got fascinated with India and I'm still involved in the study of India. And but I was never I never practiced much yoga <clears throat> or meditation, just occasionally. And just a few postures, I'd sit in lotus posture or I'd stand on my head for a bit or things like that. But then in 1990, I went through a bit of a crisis. My father died and various things happened and it was a bit of a crisis period. And uh, a friend of mine, Danny Paradise, his name, he's a yoga teacher. We ended up staying in the same house in Sussex one summer uh, during this period when I was not very happy. And uh, <clears throat> he said, come on, he said, let's do some yoga. So he was teaching a lot in a local school or local church hall rather. And uh, so went along and started doing yoga with him just a little bit at, the, at first. But I knew immediately uh, he was teaching Ashtanga and I knew this is it. So I decided I was going to, uh, it didn't matter what happened. I was going to base my, my life around uh, doing yoga every day. Because I thought, well, if I'm not very, feeling not very well in my mind, um, uh, there's no point to, to put anything as a priority. I had to sort myself out first. If I'd have gone to the doctor at that time, he'd have probably advised taking some uh, antidepressant <laughs> drug or something or whatever, or some sort of therapy. But I knew it was just my brain chemistry had just been messed up by all these uh, traumatic or uh, emotionally disturbing events. And then I just got into doing it every day. And uh, I, 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 that first class, I remember that first class I did with him after about 10 or 15 minutes of just doing about 10 or 15 minutes practice. For the first time in months, I started feeling uh, a change in, in the way I was feeling about everything. And so I just continued. And yeah. yeah I love that. When you, so would you say that India had a big influence on, on yoga as well with you? Yeah, yeah. Because that's where it comes from. I mean, of course, there are shamanic practices in lots of different cultures, but specifically yoga postures are... Uh, primarily developed in India and I, I got fascinated with from a, as a from a teenager years onwards with altered states and uh, yoga and uh, these kinds of things and uh, India is is just so rich in in that kind of culture that uh, they they have such a history of uh, experiment and philosophy and all this stuff and so uh, I was just fascinated with India and I'm still fascinated with India it's a living museum of human culture what was the year when you ventured down India what was the year that you went there? I went in 1977. I went in 1977. And I went um, with, a, with I, I, I started getting interested when I was about 15. I wanted to go to India. It took a while to get there. And then uh, with a friend, uh, we hitchhiked. Uh, oh, wow. We started hitchhiking and we went buses and trains and trucks and all sorts of things. And it took three months to get there. That was, that was before... Whoa. That was before people used to fly. It was very, very expensive to fly in those days and nobody flew. And the overland route was open and it was the hippie trail. And uh, so we, we did we did all that. And I was very, I think it's very lucky because after I came back, that was in 78, beginning of 1978. Then shortly after that, there was the revolution in uh, Iran. And then there was the war in Afghanistan and the overland route got closed more or less. 
But that first trip out, that was my first trip out of Europe, <clears throat> and going to India, and it was the best. It was it was so exciting. <laughs> and there were, in those days, there were no guidebooks or anything like that at all. Yeah, I mean, you, I went to London, and I bought Bartholomew's map of India. <laughs> and then you just look, that's, that, that's how you got to know India, looking yeah. at the map, you know, and then look, we've got to go to this country and this country and this country. And, I mean, India, India and them days as well. I've heard stories of, in, was it in, in the in the 70s, it would have been much different than now. I mean, I heard in the past there wasn't many cars on the roads and stuff. It was totally different. In fact, yeah. I, I found India so amazing at that time because um, it was so unpolluted. I mean, now it's the opposite. It's the most polluted place in the world. But in those days, there was very little plastic, if any, and uh, very few cars. And uh, there were no tourists at all. Maybe a few in Mumbai and a place, places like that, or Bombay, as they used to call it. But... Even in a place like Pushkar, which is a big tourist center these days, I mean, we went there. There wasn't, and there were no restaurants at all, you know. And there's just one government, a hotel, and then it's a bit expensive. So the man he said you can sleep on the roof for a rupee a night. So that's what we did. So it was just all, you know, just uh, travelers, uh, uh, not not tourists in that way. And as I say, it was just by word of mouth. I, I didn't know where to go in India, but I had two friends who'd been. Well, more than that, but to one friend he said Rishikesh is great, so we went there first. And then another friend of mine had been to Goa, and he said Goa's great, so that, uh, after that we went to Goa. That's how it happened. It wasn't uh, well, these places weren't well known in those days, unless you were an expert, of course. Yeah, it's, I think it's um, definitely it would have been a, a rare opportunity to have an insight into that culture before it's been westernized. Now I think it's a it must be really I think that's really cool. That do you, when you said you were when you were hitchhiking and stuff, did you did you have much money or anything like that? No, very little money. Oh, really? Nobody had any money. Yeah. <laughs> We, we started off, we went off to Sweden first because a friend of mine, his, his uh, father was there and we could stay there for a few days. And so we went to hitchhike, hitchhike to Sweden, to Stockholm. And then we went uh, hitchhiked all the way, then hitchhiked all the way down to uh, Munich. And then in Munich, took the Orient Express to Istanbul. Closer, okay, thank you. Yeah, to, the, to Istanbul. And then we got to Istanbul and we checked into a hotel. And uh, then we heard that... Uh, we went into this cafe and uh, we heard that there was a, a coach uh, leaving to go to Kabul. So just around the corner from the cafe. So we went there and uh, they said, yeah, 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 we're going yeah, very, very soon. Uh, and so we rushed back to our hotel. We, we'd only just checked in, grabbed our things, went to the bus and they got the engine going. And uh, it's one of these uh, big coaches. And uh, the engine was already going, and, we, and then we just jumped on the bus, and that was it. We were off, uh, off, off, off to. Uh, that was about three weeks it took to get to Kabul. All through, we went through Turkey and then Iran, and then got to Afghanistan, and then they dropped us in Kabul after a few weeks. Uh, we were just traveling. I think about thirty-five people on that on that coach. We'd stop at night and make a big fire, and everybody cook and yeah, all that stuff, and and then. Some people sleeping on the bus, some people sleeping outside, and then next day we drive on to another place. And we had to stop at the borders, and everybody had to get visas and all that kind of thing. And after about three weeks, we got to Kabul, and they dropped us there, stayed for a bit there, and then started. Then took local buses through the Khyber Pass, got to Pakistan, and train across Pakistan, and then yeah, eventually got to India. As soon as I'd arrived, as soon as I arrived in India, uh, in Amritsar. Well, we crossed the border at Bugger, and then we got to... As soon as I, I arrived in India, I just felt immediately it was familiar somehow. Uh, it was very familiar, and I just loved being there immediately. It's, and, it's interesting how places, some places where you, mm. you visit, do you do get that sense, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
some of my Indian friends think that maybe in a past life I was an Indian <laughs> or something. So who knows? <laughs> but uh, it's still fascinating now. I still, I, I used, uh, after, I stayed as much as I could uh, in the early days. I, after that first trip in India, I came back and I'd been working as a gardener. And it's a great job. It, uh, it was, you know, very mundane sort of thing. And I decided I wanted to go to university to study this stuff because I had a gap, a long gap after I finished my A-levels. And, and so, uh, yeah, and then went to university uh, in Wales and did philosophy and religion, did a lot of Hinduism. And then um, in 1981, that was after my degree uh, with my girlfriend, we, we, we went to India. That was, that was the second second trip. And then when I went back with her, that was the second time, that was in 81, I just didn't want to leave. I found it so fascinating. I just wanted to stay and stay. So I stayed as much as I could. And uh, yeah. And then, then in about ni- then 96, in 96, uh, I, I, I've been there a lot and uh, I, I got fed up with it and living out of a backpack and uh, hardly any money and, and everything. And so that was sort of decided I was going to spend more time in England and less time in India. What did, what did that time in India teach you most about life? Did it teach did you get any any big valuable lessons out of that moment? Oh, huge, huge! I think the thing about India it's very anarchic, very anarchic place. Timothy Leary once said, "If you uh, if you like LSD, you'll like India, and if you don't like LSD, you won't like India." Because <laughs> <laughs> you have to be you, you have to surrender to the anarchy if you like of how, how how everything functions, and, there's a, and it's very direct. Um, you know the people. Especially then, I mean, it's still the same now in rural India. You know, they they came right, come right up to you. They're very, very direct. There's no privacy, you know. So you, you have to, you know, it's in your face. Everything very, very noisy, smelly, uh, uh, dirty sort of place. You know, this is at you all the time. So, so you have to, you have to, um, you have to be uh, open to people and also uh, flexible in how, what what you're doing. I think another thing that it taught me was um, about um, how to live very simply. Because in the West, it's very, I mean, everywhere, it's very complicated. But I, I really value that experience of, I mean, I spend a lot of time like sleeping on beaches or in jungles or those sorts of places. And then it's a very simple life. You know, you just collect water and wood and cook and do those sorts of things. And, and I think that's, um, I think to be self-sufficient like that is very important uh, for psychological health, that you're not totally dependent on a... Uh, supermarket and you know everything delivered and <laughs> yeah so uh. yeah i love that it's a great story and how so i mean so when when that time when you were in india what was the i mean obviously you've you've been on this journey you've been hitchhiking and stuff mm-hmm. and you must have obviously you've come across people who are oh, people who were sort of practicing the art of yoga mm-hmm. i mean what was the account encounters there did, i mean did you come across any sort of like um, sort of people who were practicing yoga on a regular basis, sort of like quote unquote, I wouldn't call them spiritual masters, but maybe just sort of yogis. Yeah, yeah. Did you come across any sort of definitely? Yogis? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, when I first went, <clears throat> I was of course very much younger, and I was uh, quite naive in a way, and I was fascinated. I thought that, that these enlightened gurus were there, you know. And I, I visited a few, and uh, I, I quickly got quite disillusioned with the whole scene, with the ashrams and the gurus and the, the whole thing. But also there were all the sadhus who are yogis, you know, uh, not all, but I mean, it's, it's a complex thing that the sadhu, you know, and, and his role or her role. But they, they, these are people who live in a parallel kind of social uh, uh, environment to the ordinary society. And um, 
they, they, they are, they, I mean, the whole hippie thing can be, you know, it's directly parallel with the way the, the buffers are. And, and those, and many of those guys are yogis. And, and the, the, one of the characterizations of the yogi, if you look at the early text, is, is these people who are beyond opposites. And the dvandva, the, the opposites. They, you know, if it's hot, they don't mind. You know, if it's cold, they don't mind. You know, they eat, it's fine. If they don't eat, it's fine. It's, it's having a kind of equanimity in the, in, in the, in life. Mm-hmm. And so some of these guys are very tough as well, you know, psychologically and physically. Some of them, of course, they die young from terrible sort of existence, but, but they're very tough, some of them psychologically and physically. And, um, and, and I think that, that very, uh, and I learned a lot about that sort of attitude to life, I think, from sadhus. I ended up doing a PhD on sadhus. That was my, my oh. doctorate. So, uh, <laughs> so I wrote a doctorate on the sannyasis. That's, there are two large, very large sects of sadhus, not so large these days, but the Ramanandis is one and the, what they call the Dasnami or Dashnami sannyasis is the other lot. So I did I wrote my PhD on the Dashnami sannyasis, that sort of sect of yogis. How, how mm. prevalent was yoga in, when you were in India at that time, was it was it was it common? Was it quite prevalent when you were sort of interactions yeah. you were having? Well, there's, there's a, it's an interesting thing is because um, <clears throat> there's a fine line between what they call tapas or austerities and practices of yoga. So tapas or austerities, it's where these bhavas they they they, they fast, uh, they stay up all night, and they devote the whole life sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, they're they're very uh, because traditionally in India yoga. Is, is always carried by the marginal people on in society who are not mainstream. Who and it's a full time job for a, a traditional yoga is very different to what we do now in the West. Uh, I call what we do now in the West yoga light. You know, it's it's great and everything. You know, people stretch and breathe and do a bit of meditation, but then go home and have a pizza and watch the telly, <laughs> and it's fine. Yeah. But this is not the uh, traditional yogi in India. He's completely out of mainstream society, uh, living in remote places and doing all these practices. And, and, and deprivations, so say fasting and very little food and that kind of, that kind of thing. And so there's, in, in the traditional way of understanding it, there's a very fine line between like these austerities, tapas and yoga. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's the same, same thing really. And it's, it's to be able to concentrate in, uh, or to remain, be able to remain concentrated in all sorts of, uh, psychological conditions. It doesn't matter how you are, you can still sit and you know, breathe and do all that stuff. So, it was fascinating, and then also just in a in a practical way. I remember first arriving in when I first arrived in Rishikesh with my friend. We were traveling together, and then north of Rishikesh, there's a place called Munikireti, which is a little village, if you like, by the Ganga there. And uh, I was quite astounded to see that you don't see it these days, but there were all these babas or yogis all lined up on the, on the side of the road, all sleeping or lying on beds of nails. You know, so they get up in the morning. It's always their party trick. You know, they get up in the yeah. morning and then they, 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 that's their sort of after they're getting up, they file the, the points on their beds of nails and get back down on these beds of nails. <laughs> and I've never seen anything like that. You don't see them anymore, but in those days you see, you see a lot, lot, a lot of that kind of thing. These people doing tapas, babas, they, they hold their arm in the air yeah, for yeah. like 12 years or, but they'll also do breathing exercises, pranayama, and they do postures, they do all sorts of things. It's all part of a package that they do. Some of them might not do postures, or some might, uh, but but there's and some of them are do, more concerned with doing mantra. They re- repeat mantras all the time. But all these are practices or techniques for gaining control over the mind and your natural inclinations. It's a, a kind of reverse reversal of your ordinary way of living, 
where you naturally pursue uh, pleasures all the time. You know, you you know that you go from one to the other. You know, there's dinner and there's a cup of tea and then <laughs> you know this is how we live. And so it, it's it's going in the opposite current. It's, it's going against all that. Not doing things that are naturally pleasurable. Trying to conquer those um, natural inclinations, and and that gives you a kind of inner inner resilience. Uh, if you if you follow that path, however you follow it, even the discipline of just doing as we do in the West, these what I call yoga light, that's already a, a start mm. because you're 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 getting up and you're doing a disciplined thing, not for any um, immediate pleasure, but uh, just because you're disciplining yourself through exercises or breathing or whatever it is. And something powerful. Just sorry to mm. jump in, but mm-hmm. about the where you said the word immediate pleasures, mm. because um, I'm with you on that. It's not mm. just about the immediate immediate pleasures. I think mm. what I've noticed when I sort of if I do like a long fast or I do a prolonged amount of period, mm. I think, like you said, it's not it's not giving you like the discipline that you provide in that moment doesn't give you the immediate pleasures, mm. but there is something richer at the end of that tunnel That's once right. you've yes, once you've yes. sort of cultivated the discipline. Yeah, yeah. Because what, what, if you if you do follow these kind of do these kinds of practices, um, you you can end up well you do end up with um, a, a much more um, clear mental state, and so you can just be sitting and just happy, just sitting. Uh, and and uh, without thinking, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. You know, you just you can just be uh, not not inactive necessarily, but you're more happy in your where you are in your environment. The way I like to see mm. is the word I use is running clean. Mm-mm. Like you sort of you, mm. you do you understand yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, when yeah. you do, I think you will understand yeah, that because exactly. you're someone yes, who yes, went yeah. deep in the world of yoga. Mm. But whatever, if it's a health practice, it's mm. the sense of you feel your body's running running clean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you, do you um, I, like see it's an area that I'm really fascinated by and I would love to see insight on because I'm somebody who's definitely want to go deeper into the world of yoga because I'm mm. getting pulled more and more to it. Mm. But over the years, I've like I see, I've probably been what, what do you call it? The, the light, the light yoga, yoga, like yoga yeah. light. Yeah, well, yeah. see, I'll do I'll do yoga every morning or something for an hour or something like that. Mm. But there's definitely so, I definitely find something in the in the sort of the prolonged discipline where you where you I'm fascinated by the facet of sort of devoting a lot of time to a certain practice like yoga because obviously I've dabbled in it I know the benefits of mm. of just doing it for a small amount of time but there's just there's something where I'm, I'm fascinated by by what it what does that prolonged amount of period of time of you focusing on that discipline of yoga what does that provide with you in the mind mm. because i already understand what an hour of, an hour of it a day provides mm. I'm, I'm always just fascinated by the spiritual aspect of it and what it mm-hmm. what does that cultivate well the ultimate aim of yoga practices traditionally in india is to uh, attain a non-ordinary state of consciousness um something i've been talking about in lectures recently which only struck me as significant recently is that <clears throat> if you go back in Indian philosophy to the Upanishads, you get the idea, it's a couple of thousand years ago, two and a half thousand years ago. They, they talk about the, the four, it's, I didn't never took much notice of this before, but the four states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, sleeping, and the fourth called Turiya, the fourth state. But actually what they're talking about is this fourth state is as different from ordinary waking consciousness as, as sleep is different from waking. You know, it's that different. And, and that is what the goal is to attain these non-ordinary states of, non-ordinary state of consciousness. Not like an enhanced waking state or an enhanced dreaming state, a completely different kind of state. And this, this fourth state, this non-ordinary state of consciousness is not only the goal of yoga, but all Indian systems of philosophy, that's the aim of practicing philosophy. It's not a kind of abstract exercise. It's to attain that non-ordinary state of consciousness. 
And that's, that's something that is glossed over in yoga light. You know, uh, the yoga, standard yoga teacher will be, you know, sort of class in a, a middle sex will probably be horrified if the students went into a trance state and stopped breathing. You know, they call the doctor or something or the yeah, paramedics, yeah. you know. <laughs> but this is, this is actually what the aim is, you know, the, uh, it, it, deep yoga practice or deep those tapas things all this these these are for attaining these not these there's a spectrum of states but non-ordinary states of consciousness and it's those non-ordinary states of consciousness that that are the key um because it's a bit like um it's it's a it's a bit like um rebooting the computer you know, you, you turn off the brain for a bit and then you turn it back on again and it's like rebooting the computer or defragging the hard drive and um, so I think the significance of that is often overlooked um, uh, when people are discussing yoga, the, the, the aim of it. These days, the emphasis, since the sort of commodification of it, more or less, and the y- yoga light is about health and relaxation and uh, improving your functionality in society, essentially, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, I, I don't have any objection to that at all. But if you want to go further, you're actually aiming at non-functionality in society rather than being yeah, more functional in society yeah. you know you, you completely withdraw you're not interested in being functional in society anymore you're much more interested in the kind of state that produces insight and knowledge and all those other things uh, and and of course some it can be very frightening it can be dangerous it can be ecstatic and all that but it's a much deeper thing than we do ordinarily in the west these are these non-ordinary states but what's interesting in India is they've had they've had these these uh, these states the, the acknowledgement of these states has been around forever. You know, it's part and part of the part and parcel of the culture that um, yogis attain samadhi or these kinds of these kinds of states, and they have a an enormous traditionally enormous respect for these states. Um, you know, the the yogi is like you know this is yeah. uh, you know. Uh, not that he's just a crazy madman. You know, he's mm. not doing anything. Not productive. You know, and uh, there was this. I, I talk about him sometimes, but there was this in South India. There used to be these five child yogis, bal yogis, and I don't know. I've forgotten the guy's name, but there was one of them who he was in a trance state in samadhi in a temple in Andhra Pradesh for many, many years. He actually left his body. I think it was in 1982, around then. But he'd been in that temple for about 20 or 30 years in a trance. So his you know, eyes were rolled up in the top of his head. He was just sitting there cross-legged, um, very long fingernails, of course, white as a sheet. But he'd been in a trance state for maybe 20 years. And on, on Shivaratri, that's the black moon in February, the temple doors would open and the, all the pilgrims, 100,000 pilgrims would file past and have darshan, go and see the Baba and you know, the yogi in, in that state. And so <clears throat> everybody knew, what, everybody knows what that is. He's just in a trance. He's there. It wasn't a question of taking him to the doctor or... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's a very different take on this stuff in India. You know, they they know they, they it recognise it's a very ancient history uh, of, of yogis attaining these kinds of states, and this is this is something I find fascinating um, because really uh, I think the 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 um, the route into it in the West really uh, there's the, the one on the one side we've got the yoga light happening in society, but also there's the psychedelic renaissance, and of course used appropriately and if you're lucky as well it's not even guaranteed with psychedelics you can also attain these non-ordinary states of consciousness not an enhanced uh, state you know where everything's brighter or a bit trippy but i mean a really like a trance state where you just about stop breathing and the heart nearly stops and you're just in these trance states and that that those rare transcendental uh, experiences are are 
yeah, they're very precious things, you know. They're, 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 and 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 because the people, when people attain these states, they have an insight into the nature of reality, what it actually is, which you 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 don't get, however much you think about it. Uh, you can analyze uh, what's going on to the you know endlessly, but you won't really see what's going on until you actually attain a non-ordinary state, and then you realize that actually I'm not just this. You know, um, there's, there's there's a lot more going on than we ordinarily see. You know, the mind, the reducing valve of the mind just screens out all the big picture. You know, it's, yeah, because you become socially dysfunctional. You know, when you're in a non-ordinary state. So, yeah, I think it's all cre- it's all coming. It's 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 coming slowly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. When you were a fascinating story, that mm. I, honestly, I really love stories like that. Just mm. something about them stories mm-hmm. that just it's just something inside of us that loves them stories. Mm. But when you were describing the uh, the guy who was in the the temple, you said. Mm. And he was in that constant state of samadhi. Samadhi, yeah. yeah. What do you what do you think's actually going on there? Is he? Is he? I mean, obviously, he's in some form of altered state of consciousness. Mm. But what form of altered state of consciousness? Um, no, the, the, the there's a lot of uh, literature and uh, understanding of this in India. We don't have the vocabulary even in the West for these kinds of non ordinary states. <clears throat> um, these are pathological conditions as far as we're concerned um i my own take on it and this is very very speculative is that it's could be compared to uh, animal hibernation like human hibernation now animals can just shut off and their breathing yeah. stops their heart rate goes down to like five six beats a minute and i think in these non-ordinary states this is the same kind of thing that's happening to a human being that we have the capacity to enter those states it, it's rare but it, it can happen and I think I would describe it, as the, it's a, an incredibly blissful state. I mean, you know, it's just like the, the max, you know, <laughs> way beyond anything <laughs> pleasurable. It's, a, it's super intense. Uh, it's descri- there's lots of descriptions in, the, in, Indian, in, in Indian languages for these things, like the bliss and whatever these things. It's a, it sounds a bit funny to say bliss in English, you know, sort of overused term, like, you know, blissful after you've been to the, <laughs> on holiday or <laughs> gone yeah, to Sainsbury's yeah, yeah. or something, <laughs> you know. But, but that then these rare transcendental states, yeah, that's the core of it, attaining these states. And I think it's, I, my own take is something like human hibernation. In fact, the, the chap who, uh, there's a guy called James Braid, he published this book in 1840, I think it was called Human Hibernation. And in that book, there's a description of a, a simile of a yogi who went into samadhi. And uh, that's a great description. I mean, this is going back yeah, 1840-ish, I think it was. And <clears throat> um, he'd heard uh, that there was this yogi who lived in uh, Lahore in Pakistan who could go into samadhi. <clears throat> They're very interested in this. They wanted to see what this was all about. So they went there, <clears throat> found the yogi, and they said, can you go into samadhi for us? He said, yes. <laughs> and so then there was the, the Maharaja of Lahore and he came on the elephant, the elephants and the doctor and the British surgeon and all these people. They were very interested in this experiment. So then the yogi, he did he did intense pranayama, you know, this intense breathing. <laughs> I don't know exactly what he did. And he went into samadhi, eyes rolled into the top of his head, gone you know, into this state. And they put him in a cloth bag. <clears throat> they put that cloth bag inside a box and they put that box in a cave and they sealed the cave with a lock and wax and everything and put him in there. And uh, he said, wait, like, wait me up after 40 days, 40 days I'll go in there. You wake me up after 40 days. So, and this is all very well documented. So after 40 days, I came back, opened the cave, pulled the box out, took him out the cloth bag and he was gone, you know, just eyes in the top of his head and just gone. So, and then he started massaging his body 
and then they put hot towels on his head. They got a knife. They prized open his teeth with a knife. They put ghee, you know, clarified butter on his tongue to massage it, to make it go down his throat and this, that, and the other. Then after about half an hour, he twitched. like <laughs> He was back. <laughs> you know, he'd come back into his body. And uh, that, that was it. And so was, yeah, they were very happy to have seen this experiment. But he had been in that cave for 40 days, just gone, you know, just in this in this trance state. So... Uh, so you know, mm. it's fascinating because I'm 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 also I'm fascinated by everything and I'm open minded to everything. Uh, the the aspect of because when they're in that trance state, these yogis and stuff, people talk about how they don't even eat food and no, stuff like that. Have you obviously come into contact with anyone who's? I know there's there's a lot mm. of um, people who talk about use the word breathitarian and stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you come in contact when you were in yoga with any people or or through the literature or the like you've the yeah. research you've done of people who are breathitarian? Well. Yeah, I've come across people who claim to be, uh, I think they sometimes call them breatharians, these people, yeah. I don't know what the word is exactly, but they claim that. I'm very sceptical. I'm very sceptical because um, I look at things from a scientific point of view. Uh, and the uh, thing is, if you're moving around and talking and doing all these things, you're using energy. Yeah. And for sure, you can minimize your diet and, 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 and really go down to a ridiculously low level of uh, consumption, you know, food and minerals and everything else. But I, I, I don't believe the claims of people who are breatharian and walk around and talk because you're using energy. So, you know, that's different from going into a trance state where physiologically nobody really understands this. There's no, you are, you are in such a different state. You don't need food or water or anything. You just, you know, it's like you're in this trance state. And, uh, another famous person was Ramakrishna. He's a very famous saint lived in Bengal, 19th, end of the 19th century. And, it's a long story, his life, but he, he finally went into Samadhi and uh, <clears throat> gone. And after he tried everything to get to attain liberation, and he tried everything. He identified with the world's re- different religious traditions and tried all these practices and tantric things and everything. He still couldn't merge with the ultimate. And this yogi came along one day and they were medita- meditating together. And then this yoga, yogi, Totopuri, his name, Without telling him, he, they were meditating together and suddenly he took this piece of glass and he just jammed it right here in his forehead. Back, and blood was pouring out. Ramakrishna, he screams, ow, 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 what are you doing? And he said, concentrate on the pain, concentrate on the pain. And he did. And then he went out. And he was out for six months. So they put it, well, the first, when he went out there in Samadhi, they put his body in this little room in this temple, Dakineshwar near Calcutta, and he was there. And the thing is, if you're normally, uh, well, is Patanjali, the great, uh, uh, that text is very well known now, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And there he says there are, there's a kind of samadhi where you come back and there's a sign of samadhi where you don't come back. Well, it seems that uh, many cases, I don't know about how many, but most cases of samadhi, they, they, when you go into that, you won't come back unless somebody brings you back, like knocks on the door and wakes you up, as it were. And uh, so after six months, he'd been there and they, they didn't want him to leave his body. They wanted him to be around. So they were putting a drop of water on his uh, lips every day just to sort of keep him there. After six months, somebody put uh, some water from the river, which is actually contaminated, uh, some sort of bacteria. And as the drop went down into his stomach, it started a movement in his stomach and that brought him back into his body. And so, But he'd been out, he'd been gone for six months. After that, <clears throat> things would just trigger the samadhi spontaneously, a conversation or a picture of a deity or something. He'd go off for a few hours and come back again. But So he was coming and going from samadhi. But uh, yeah, I think the, the ultimate is uh, yeah when there's this trance state, you're just in this trance state and you, so you need to be woken up or brought back 
it's fascinating that, mm, by the way. Mm. Do you do you think that do you think that people have ever got to that state and they've just completely left the body? Yeah, they do. They, I mean, I think if after some time in that uh, state, I mean, that yogi in in Andhra Pradesh, he was meant to have been in that temple for twenty years or more, maybe thirty years. Uh, I can't, I don't know, and I don't know how long he was actually there. Certainly for many years, because I, I I met this chap who'd been there to see to see him, this foreign American guy, been there in the queue to see this Baba in the temple. How long he'd been there? They say 20 or 30 years. They exaggerate a lot in India. But yeah, <laughs> anyway, he'd been yeah. there a long time. He'd been there a long time in, in the temple, uh, just in this trance state. And uh, <clears throat> so it's a real phenomenon, uh, this, this, this state. And uh, sorry, you know, I've forgotten your question. You asked me the, uh, the original question. Yeah, I just asked you, basically, do you think that they've, when they've been in that state, mm. state, have they ever... Do you think that people's left the body? Oh, yeah. The, leaving the body, it's, they say that after a certain amount of time in that state, you can just drop, the, people do just drop the body and go. Yeah. It's fascinating mm-hmm. because I had a, a guy on the podcast and it's funny because I don't think I talked about this on the, on the actual mm-hmm. podcast itself, mm-hmm. but it was after the, the mics were turned off. Mm-hmm. This guy who's a very, um, one of the top lucid dreamers in the world, mm-hmm. he said that, and he's been doing this for like 30, 40 years now, mm-hmm. lucid dreaming. And he said this bit of profound knowledge that he got once, he believed that when he was in a lucid dream, because within a lucid dream, there's dream figures. Mm. And sometimes these dream figures possess, possess a form of intelligence and, a, and it definitely possesses a form of consciousness, definitely. And well, it seemed that way anyway. Mm. But he says that he has a theory that these ascended masters who have left the left this physical reality through means of altering the consciousness mm have moved over into this in-between sort of realm, where it's, which is the lucid dream realm, mm. and, and they can infl- infiltrate um, your consciousness once you enter this realm. Mm. We're really wild anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I, would, yeah. I, would love to, I just wanted to mention that anyway, but mm. I would love to know how, how deep have you gone in the world of yoga? Oh, I'm only a lightweight, really. You know, I just do my little Ashtanga practice and, yeah. and meditate sometimes. And, you know, I, I, I've... Um, I just do it as a, a kind of routine discipline thing. And I, I, I do it every day, nearly every day. I missed this morning because I had to come and register. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and uh, I've been doing that, yeah, nearly 30 years now, this sort of regular practice. And <clears throat> it, it's, it varies the effect of the practice every day. And sometimes I don't get much out of it. Sometimes I get loads out of it. Um, and Ashtanga is quite a heavy workout. So that when you finish, yeah, I, for, for people who don't know, could you describe like what Ashtanga Ashtanga is? I can't pronounce it. I'm terrible yeah, I, at pronouncing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, in the in the world, there are many lineages of uh, yoga practice. About half of them go back to Krishnamacharya, a chap who lived in South India. I think he died in 1982 or 1984. He was over 100 when he died. And he had uh, several important students. Important only in the sense that they went abroad and took yoga practices abroad in the 1960s and 1970s. And so his most influential students who took yoga abroad, that was um, his son, Desika Chah. Then there was um, BKS Iyengar. Uh, now, BKS Iyengar, who died recently, uh, he, he taught in Pune mostly, um, and he called his he just called his system Hatha Yoga. Patabi Joyce, who was another of his students, called his system Ashtanga Yoga. So from Krishnamacharya, those three, 
there was uh, there was other people as well. There were Indian teachers, and there's Indra Devi who went to America, then South America, very influential there. But from his teachings, from Krishnamacharya's teachings, they they developed their own styles and their own practices. All the yoga practices involve similar elements. It's just how much weight they put on different elements. Um, Iyengar, he emphasizes a light practice, but very accurate. You know, if you go to a Iyengar class, you know, your your hand can't be there. It's got to be there. You know, it's very precise. You hold these postures a long time. Um, what used to be called Vini Yoga, it's changed its name now. That's from his son, Desika Chow. That was more devotional. There's more singing and chanting and more of that style. Ashtanga Yoga, uh, which pioneered by Patabi Joyce, who also died recently, and also a bit, there's a lot of controversy about his teaching practices these days, but <clears throat> um, he, he called his system Ashtanga. That was all, just a name for it. I, the name Ashtanga goes way back to Patanjali, who called his his yoga path the Ashtanga path, the eight-limbed or eight-subsidiary path of yoga. That's what he called it. But it's just a name for Ashtanga. But Ashtanga, that practice is very aerobic. It's very dynamic. You do a lot of postures, uh, quite rapidly it's the same post, post like we've seen before it's the same postures every single day that's though. right you can you, you there are different levels there are three main levels so you learn what's called the first series and the second series and the third series progressively more complex gymnastically as it were but it, it demands that that ashtanga practice is is much more of is, is the is the system with a, a big workout element in it you know you're you're doing uh, stretches and it's intense you sweat you know you do all that sort of stuff so it's just a name for a system yeah. It's very, it, in some ways, it's similar to um, Bikram yoga. That's another lineage from, it really comes from Calcutta, a hot yoga, you know, with it. It's a very, in a way, it's similar to the Ashtanga practice, except done in a very hot room. And then you have another lineage coming from Shivananda and uh, Bihar School of Yoga, also. There's Satyananda Sarasvati, who was uh, the student of Shivananda, who took, again, that, but that, that, that branch, again, is a bit different. They're also more devotional uh, in their practices. But Ashtanga is, uh, yeah, it's more of a heavy workout uh, physically with lots of postures and difficult postures as well. Some of the, the advanced ones are very, very difficult. Yeah. So it's a big stretch and it's a big push. And uh, so it's an aerobic form of yoga. Just that form I happened to be introduced by to by my teacher who trained in that. And so uh, that, that's how it all happened. It's funny because just off the podcast, what I was saying, I just wanted to mention it again because I think it's a valuable point because when I've experienced, I, I kind of say it, Ashtanga. Ashtanga, yeah, mm -hmm. I did a two-week, um, like sort of, I went to a retreat and it, for two weeks we did this every single day, the practice mm -hmm. of it. We did it once in the morning and once in the evening, I think mm -hmm. it was. But I said to you what I loved about the practices is, yes, it's the sort of the same physical movements, mm -hmm. but on a psychological level, it's completely different because... Mm. I think there was the what I noticed straight away is that that every single day when you step on that mat, mm. you're not the same person you were yesterday, and mm. you don't have the same state of mind. Mm. So I love that about the practice because even though it's the same movements, mm. it for your mind has different variations in it all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does, and also um, sometimes I mean sometimes I'd be much more concentrated than others. It's very much also about synchronizing your breathing with your postures. So, and it's a good practice. My, I'm very concentrated on my breathing and my movements, but sometimes I'm more distracted, like everybody, you know, and I'm doing it a bit mechanically and thinking about, oh, I've got to go there this afternoon and do this, yeah. you know. So, but, and just, uh, and just yeah. like life as well in general, mm. it, there's always something to learn. No matter mm. if you do the same pose a thousand mm. times, it's always something that will come up. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But I found the Ashtanga system, uh, everybody, I think everybody naturally finds their own path in this, their own, you know, the system that suits them. Uh, for some people, pra yoga practices, the, the posture part might be a relatively light aspect of it. They might be more into the meditation. They might be more into chanting. Uh, they might be more into cleaning exercises, different kinds of activities. But I like the Ashtanga because of the workout and it just suited me. I just took to it. I just took to it. It just suited me. And uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and it's always evolving. So yeah, I, I, after a couple of years, I did the first series. I learned the first series in the first year and the second series. And then I had a knee problem from a weak knee. And so I modified it. So I left out some things and then I started mixing up postures. And, and I think everybody's got to find their own uh, form, what suits them. There's no right and wrong about everything in any yoga practice. There's no original yoga. There's no, yeah, sometimes the people want to claim that their system is the only system. There's, there's a lot of competition nowadays between different groups. That's, yeah, I'll come across that. You know, the franchise side, you know, thing. You know, oh, if you, if you do that form of yoga, oh, you'll get sick and die. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's terrible, you know, it's yeah. no good, it's no good. I, and I, I believe, my own take on yoga, actually, if you want a definition, it's the science of experimentation on oneself. That's what it is. It's not specifically the postures or the meditation or anything of breathing or anything. It's, it's, it's the engagement with a practice that's an experiment. You know, you do this stuff. How do you feel afterwards? How, what's happening? And um, so, and I think that, that, that experiment in life covers everything. You know, how you eat, how you sleep, your sexual activity, all this kind of stuff. It's an experiment, you know, and, and not to just do things mechanically because that's what people do. It might be fine just to do what everybody does, but if you're feeling not quite right doing what everybody does, then then you do, then you're naturally you're a yogi. You know, you want to experiment, to try and, and and improve the way you feel about things and the way you function and everything. So, and I think that's the key to it's an ongoing experiment. Every day it's an experiment, and uh, yeah. So I think there's nothing wrong with innovating. Once you've learned, I think you need to pay great respect to the teacher teaching a system. Uh, you need to start somewhere you have to go along and you learn a system of yoga yoga practice after that then i think it's up to everybody to experiment for themselves to find out what works and what doesn't work i think it's if you just blindly follow a, a, a something uh it's not so much of an experiment yeah yeah, yeah. I love that. Mm. Oh, just another, another aspect I wanted to touch on with you. Mm. I'm really fascinated by it. I've been looking into it a lot lately. Mm. And it's it's hard to find information on it because obviously it's quite a, it's for the Western side of things, it's quite a will-be topic. Mm. But I, I still like looking into it because there's still so much, there's so much richness in these topics that are classed as taboo. Mm. But there's something, there's an element of the, the body when you start doing yoga. I mean, I've experienced this myself before. And there's a, um, I think it's called the, the psoas muscle. The psoas muscle. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously there's ancient cultures talk about how it's the seat of the soul and stuff, mm -hmm. and it's funny because I feel I feel like from my yoga yoga practice I've been working deeper and deeper in my body, and mm -hmm. I'm sort of I obviously have a niggle in one part of my body, mm. and then that gets fixed after mm. I, I, I sort of focus my attention while I'm mm -hmm. doing yoga on it. I move to another part of the body, but there's one part of the element of my body mm. which is sort of um, down down the sort of the inside of my leg, sort of. Mm -hmm. And I did a bit of research on it and I spoke to somebody else and they were talking about oh how that's the psoas muscle and it's connected to your back, obviously it's connected to the the to your kneecaps as well. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever looked into the sort of the the deeper meanings behind certain points in the body that hold tension or anything like that have you went down that route not particularly no no I, I'm, uh, some people are very interested in the uh, anatomical side of yoga and and the muscles and it's a fascinating thing how it all connects and how yeah, it all it works 
I, I've never really gone into that very much. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in uh, philosophy and history and um, consciousness in general, but I've, I'm not from a scientific background and I've never looked very deeply into the mechanic, mechanics of it. So, yeah, because uh, mm. just because, I mean, obviously people speak about, I mean, myself, I had this experience myself. I mean, I think in our day-to-day lives, this is what I love about yoga and mm. I think you probably relate to this, that in our day-to-day lives, we, I think Monday life's it's sort of a, a tension, we hold, so, Monday life sort of, um, it's sort of like a, a lift going down, mm. sort of putting tension, everything's yeah, yeah. putting tension. Mm. Like even these lights now are putting tension. Mm. This conversation's, the way we're sitting in these postures has given us tension. Yeah, yeah. The way we walk around our mobile phones, it's tension. Mm. Um, sort of the way that modern day society in general has just set up the things you've got to do, tension. Yeah, yeah. But with yoga, it's opening. Exactly, exactly. And there's, exactly. Something, there's something powerful about that. That is exactly, that's that's my take on it too, that... Um, it's a it's a it's a constant a battle is too strong a word but but it, it, i think we have a constant um there's a we need to be constantly aware of negative influences on our lives however that is so <clears throat> and if we if, if we notice it's a negative influence i think that the smart thing is just to get rid of it immediately so I mean, I, I like t- TV. I think is a very bad thing, you know, like mind pollution. So I, I've yeah. been TV. Yeah, I know. <laughs> From about the age of fifteen or sixteen, I didn't did not want to watch telly. People say, "Oh, there's great programs." I say, "That's not the point. The point is you're just sitting there being, you know, this is not a good thing. The TV is not a good thing." And so, again, it, it's because it's because it's a it's a negative influence on 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 our on our beings, if you like, and and what you describe as tension, you know, that if you watch the television, you just fed all these images, which cause you concern, you know, you're constantly concerned. You know, there's the news and all these yeah. things. And it's, it's very hard to, to, to block out all that stuff. And increasingly, so we're bombarded with all this negative information all the time to make us feel nervous and frightened. And, and so it's, it's not good, not good for us. Do you, do you yeah. ever feel in your practice that, um, because see if you like this morning, obviously you didn't do your practice and stuff. Mm. Mm. Do, you, do you get it because it, see, see if the, it does happen to be a day I really do try and force the practice to do make sure I do yoga every single morning mm. but just like life gets in the way sometimes and mm. sometimes you can't do it for some reason or whatever mm. it is and do you ever get the sense that when you miss yoga you're sort of you're missing the fundamental part of yourself yeah I mean I, I just feel un- I don't mind it I have a, often have a day off like once a week or something like that I will have a day off I and mean, if I can I do it every day but mm. I, like today having a day off is fine but I, I already know tomorrow morning I'm gonna. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna skip another day yeah, because if I, if I, you know, if I, after a couple of days, I'm just feeling not quite right. You know, I just, I just want to do it. Yeah, you do. You, mm. you, you build up that. T- your, your body starts getting used to it, and I think mm. you sort of, your body requ- requ- does require it. Sort of like a like a pill in a way. It does. Requ- yeah, that, does oh, it is. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you get that endomorphin hit. You know, when you've done that practice and got to have a, had a good practice, you get that. Yeah, cool. I, I got ill last year. I always I had the flu and had this that. And it was about a month. I was ill. I, I didn't do yoga for a month. It was the longest time I'd ever had off. I think, and uh, it was awful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lying in bed there, just feeling very sorry for myself. And I, I was so happy when I could uh, start again. And immediately after that first day, I just went to heaven. You know, I just after. Oh my god, it was fantastic. You know, I just felt so good afterwards. Yeah. Just before, obviously, I'm mindful of the time, so we'll, we'll wrap up soon. But I just wanted to—is there anything that I didn't? A question I maybe didn't ask you on the origins of on the origins of yoga. I know we covered a lot, but is there anything oh, that- on, on the origins? Yeah, I mean, well, one thing is that nobody knows how old yoga practices are. Nobody knows. 
people will say you'll read things in books or teachers will say you know it's five thousand years old ten thousand years old we just don't know my own belief is probably it's very very ancient but we just don't know the um earliest really the the earliest uh records we have of people doing yoga practices are from about 2500 years ago that's when we get references that's when we get buddhism and we get the upanishads then we know that people were uh practicing withdrawing their senses from the external world as a kind of spiritual discipline and i say it might be much older than that we just don't know it it the practice of yoga also i believe probably coincides with um, a fundamental change in thinking that uh, humans uh, experienced uh, that began in the 7th century bc this is a very interesting point i think but uh, just from sort of a bit of a tangent on this one but yeah go ahead go ahead i like tangents um, yeah yeah so all your tangents have been cool so far yeah, so, so go ahead so um I was at a conference a few years ago in Exeter University. Richard Seaford, he's a professor of classics in Exeter University, he pulled this conference together in scholars of India and scholars of uh, classical Greek and Latin texts. And his, in, he wrote a great book called um, Money in the Early Greek Mind. <clears throat> now, I'm summarizing a much more complex picture and simplifying things a bit, but essentially, about in about the 7th century BC, in that region that stretches all the way from Greece to India, which is in the old, old world one cultural region, really, humans develop the capacity for abstract thinking. Um, and that was the start of the invention of money and the invention of philosophy simultaneously. The first places where coins were minted was the first places where you've got Greek philosophers, proper philosophers. Now, philosophy is a complex topic but it's to do with my take on it it's to do with appearances and reality and that's what philosophy is you're trying to get behind the appearances to what's you know you have the philosophy of language the philosophy of i mean history the philosophy of mathematics doesn't matter you're trying to get behind you know the the the, the appearance and who knows what instigated all this but it was the development in the way that uh in in the last few hundred years humans have acquired the capacity for 3d representation artistically and if you go back a few hundred years, it's all in 2D, but then we got this 3D capacity. When I was um, at school, when I was 13 in a biology class, we all had to, were asked to draw pictures of, a, I think it was a car and a house. Now, at the age of 13 in the West, that's when we acquired this capacity for three-dimensional representation. Half the kids in the class still hadn't got it. They drew two-dimensional things and half the kids could draw three-dimensional things. So it's in evolutionary terms, humans are, are are still acquiring new capacities. So in the seventh century BC, we acquired this capacity for abstract thinking and for philosophy. And that was the, of course, we had new religious movements, Buddhism, Jainism, and all these things started. We get the invention of money, we get the invention of philosophy and all these extraordinary, it's called the Axial Age. Carl Jaspers called this period from about 700 BC to 300 BC, 400 BC, the Axial Age. That's when the huge changes in human activity started and thinking. and that's the time when we have uh, a lot of evidence of people withdrawing from society and becoming yogis in the forest if you like <clears throat> just quitting going off to the forest and just doing all their meditation and not postures in the early days the original formulation of yoga the original practice of yoga is simply 
It's all about breathing and meditation. That's the root of it. Postures and these other practices didn't get added till about 1000 AD. That's when postural yoga starts. Hatha yoga, the yoga of force or exertion. There's a complex history uh, about how all that happened. But if we go back to the earliest formulations or the earliest understandings rather, it's, it's breathing and, and, and meditating. And what you're doing in that is you're withdrawing from the world. You're withdrawing from your natural engagement with work and family and society and everything else, <clears throat> trying to attain a kind of objectivity on it all. And I find that very interesting that, that I think those processes all went together. The, 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 the non-participation in ritual. It's the time also when sacrifice changes in the classical Greek world and also in India from the necessity to sacrifice an animal and please the gods and uh, do all these ritual activities to in the, it's called the internalization of the ritual when you don't have to do that anymore. You just sac you're sacri the sacrifices of the self. It's the they, uh, it's always being described as the care of the self. You know, you're, 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 you disengage and you start trying to attain a, a higher vision of things through these these kinds of yoga practices. And so I think that's a very significant moment. That and, and when we're talking about, I, I'm pretty sure that humans, some humans, have always done these types of things. But certainly from the seventh century BC. And it's slightly later in India, but around the same time, we get evidence of people. Yeah, real, there's a change, certainly in Indian thinking. If you go back historically, if you go back before the 7th century if you, to the classical Vedic age, um, they're simplifying it again, but their worldview is that everything's great and the more cows and uh, the more sons and the more everything, the better. You know, life is good. But then you get this change in thinking where people are saying, well, actually... Life is not good. It's actually very bad. <laughs> there's all people doing all sorts of bad things. And, uh, you know, there's cheating and arguments and everything else and frustration and anger. And, you know, we don't want any of that. So we're going to try and, uh, you know, break through all that. And that's the start of uh, a social movement of yoga. I say not individuals probably for thousands of years, but a social movement where it's, yogi becomes a recognized character in Indian society. The person who quits, renounces society and goes off to the jungle and uh, lives on figs and coconuts and <laughs> yeah figs and coconuts yeah. yeah 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 we'll leave it there cool honestly what a podcast thank you so much oh god crazy. fist bump fist bump fist bump <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. cool sure. what a conversation by the way thank you thank you so much yeah, pleasure pleasure Thanks so much for checking that podcast out guys I really hope you enjoyed that conversation that really was one of them conversations where obviously at my time at the Britain convention I obviously had a room that I had to use but I was always on sort of a a little bit of a schedule where I had another guest booked in or something and there was some conversations especially like this one where I felt like I could have spoke for hours but I obviously have to be respectful of the guest time also be respectful of guests that I had booked in for later on in the day but this was definitely one of them where I felt like it was really just starting to warm up and I really wanted to sort of dive deeper into the aspects of all the states of consciousness with the yogis and I had so many more questions but as these podcasts unfold sometimes you never end up getting and asking half the questions that you wanted to ask prior. So I hope you understand that anyway. As I mentioned in the intro, the Ascend podcast retreat is now up and, and live. And if you want to sort of book on the retreat, all you need to do is head over to the Ascend podcast website. Like I mentioned, this really is going to be an experience of a lifetime. So it's going to be, obviously, like I said, it's going to be a group of like-minded people it's going to feel like you're stepping into another dimension, if you want to call it that. It's going to definitely feel like a psychedelic experience. And some of the things that I've got lined up for you guys, 
it is going to blow your mind. I promise you that. So if you feel uh, if you feel in your heart that this is something that that's a pull that's a pull in pull in your mind, all you need to do is head over to the Send Podcast website and check it out. So anyway, I love you all, and just to play this conversation out as I always do, as I mentioned in the last episode of Observing My Thoughts, lately in my life I've definitely um, going through this different transition in my mind. I don't know if you want to call it from a sort of a spiritual perspective, but something is definitely opening up with inside myself. I'm trying to figure out what it is. Whether that's just part of this the journey, and maybe something, maybe I'm just on a sort of a biological level, I'm just awakening to more interactions and, and having the ability to sort of see things more in the world, more better and clearly. But just to play this podcast out anyway, and it's in relation to sort of what I feel like I'm going through a bit in my mind at the minute. This song for me sort of sums that up in a little, in a, sort of a little bit. And in, in, um, over the last couple of weeks, I've list, I found it. I've been listening to this song, and I feel like it relates to some of the things that I'm going through. It's this song is um, a bit of a raw song. It's a bit of a rough and a ready song. You'll you'll understand what I mean. But it's actually f- from my friend who lives in London. He's called Technique. He really is a sort of an incredible artist. And this song is called In A Peace. And it's featuring his friend called Wisdom. So anyway, enjoy this tune by my friend called Technique. It, the song is called In A Peace. And I'm sure you're going to like it. It's rough and ready, so be prepared. Peace out, people. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. But you feel it. You felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind. Sin of seek, what they're missing is the inner peace. City streets living in the system with the wicked beast. Sin of seek, what they're missing is the inner peace. Living in the system with the wicked beast. I was born in the form of an angel scorn. Paralyzed beneath skies where my spiritual lies. My only hope to survive. They tried to limit my rise with toxins. Poison my physical being So I remain in this limited dream Can't always say what I mean But I visited scenes In vivid dreams as an inquisitive team Never paid it much mind Now as a man I've been shown signs They tried to sever the ties To our spiritual guides Sick of living a life Stuck in a sty Surrounded by peace Telling me how to live When I'm descending from kings So now the science begins We came from a place Far from this waste We inhabit this shape But can't fathom our grace Divided by speech Mankind Electric. It's like I'm tuning into frequencies beyond my perception 
Everything we're living in's a lie, trying to hide the way It's like a new wave of conscious feeling Like I'm part of this vast cosmic heart and I can feel it beating We all need releasing through the Pharisees Past the party seas to plant our seeds throughout the galaxy Why shackle me in tragedy? Illusions of confusion and savagery I'm trying to chew my shackles gradually To elude the captivity of gravity casually To view the galaxy's tapestries Before the planetary catastrophe Before we're living in hell unhappily Before human beings and machines use as batteries In a shadow of our former fallen humanity Like everyone else you were born into bondage Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch A prison for your mind